Tonight we're continuing a series that we started, uh, well, four weeks ago, but this is our third week on the study uh, on the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And uh, we, we left off last week, or not last week, uh, two weeks ago, we, we left off after just the greeting and the uh, salutations that Paul gave, and there was so much there. Tonight we're going to be looking at, at beginning in verse 4 of the first chapter of First Thessalonians. And uh, we're, we're going to be looking at Paul's commendation because he commends the church in Thessalonica for some specific things. And there, there's a lot that he packs in here that I want us to just kind of unpack a little bit so that we can, uh, we can just uh, grow a little deeper in the Word. So uh, we're, I'm going to be, begin reading in verse 4. We'll read verses 4 through 6, and then we'll break that down, and then we'll go, come back and pick it up in verse 7 and go through verse 10 tonight. This is what, what he wrote. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the, the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So I want to start there in verse 4 of, of this chapter where he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. And Paul reminded the Thessalonians of their status as God's chosen ones. Now, not, not chosen people in the same sense of, of Israel being the chosen people, that sort of thing, but but that He had chosen them. And, and the truth is, when you come to this idea of being chosen, there are very, very few issues that cause more confusion and, and even out-and-out -out arguments among Christians than the issue of election. And, and, and that's just another fancy theological word for being chosen by God. The question that I think we have to understand, we have to wrestle with, does God choose us or do we choose God? That's, that's the, the question. And if God chooses us, then do we as humans have any responsibility at all in the whole, the whole equation? And I think we need, to, we need to understand these things and what Scripture teaches. The, the doctrine of election teaches that believers are saved only because of God's grace and mercy, not uh, by their own merit, not by anything that they can do. And so that's the, the sense that, that we understand that that God chooses us. It's not that we say one day, we wake up and say, you know what, I want God in my life. It's that He uh, has already done the work. He's the one who saves us. And, and, and God does not save anyone because that person deserves to be saved. That's so important for us to keep in our minds because, you know, it's the way I... We're just a funny creature, a funny race in the human race because... We get saved by grace, and then somehow, sometimes we start feeling a little bit self-important. You know, we start feeling like, man, you know, I really got it going on now. Look what the Lord's got in me. He's so lucky that, that He's got me. And we forget that, that, he, that, that we're saved, not because of us, not because we deserve it, not because we were so fantastic that God said, oh, I've got to have Him. But it's all His grace. He, he, he graciously and freely gives salvation to whom? To whomever He chooses. Now, here's the question, and this is where sometimes uh, it gets a little uh, confusing for people. 
Whom does God choose? Well, John chapter 1, verse 12, I think gives us a very easy answer to this, because this is what John wrote. He said, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, you know, God does not arbitrarily choose certain people to go to heaven and then choose other people to go to hell. There are some out there that say that there are only a certain group of people that are actually part of the elect and and that God has chosen them for heaven and other people he has consigned to hell. And I don't believe that's what scripture teaches at all. Uh, what I believe scripture teaches and what we see here in the book of John is that God accepts everyone who will place his or her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, part of the confusion is uh, there are people in um, what's called the Reformed School of Theology nowadays that, that they say uh, that, 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 uh, that, you, you, that God does everything, that, that putting faith in him is a work. But I think the problem with that is Paul goes to great lengths in Romans to show that faith is the opposite of any work that faith is not a work of any kind whatsoever. Because there are some that will say, well, you know, God even, he gives you the faith to believe. You can't even do, you can't even have faith in him. You can't do anything. He just chooses you. But the problem with that is, is that we're told over and over again, things like Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. We're told in scripture that uh, to, to put our trust in God, to put our faith in God. So, so there are scriptures that tell us that we need to put our faith in God. Now, I, I will say this, as far as faith, the faith to believe, um, it, the scripture tells us this, and some of you, will, somebody will here will be able to finish this verse. And it says, faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. So when it comes to the matter of whether or not I can have faith in God, I believe that God releases faith in a, in a room when the word of God is being preached or when the word, when the word of God is being read. And that, 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 that causes a human heart to be able to, res, to be able to respond in faith. So, uh, so to, to put our faith in God is not a work that we do. That is just simply, that's simply the response to the work that he's already done. Uh, and the, the, what I believe, and, and this may sound a little strange, and you can, you know, we can finagle over the, the exact wording, but I believe that God has, in effect, already chosen all of mankind by offering His Son as a sacrifice for, for all. But each person has, the, has a choice to either receive that gift or to reject it. So in a sense... Anyone, the Bible says, whosoever will may come, which means that anyone can come to him and he will find salvation. He will find forgiveness. But, uh, but you have to make a choice to receive what, what he's offering. And that's the, that's the act of putting your faith in him. And so in a way, if all of mankind is chosen in the sense that Christ died for all, but, but not everybody is elect in the sense that they're going to heaven because not everyone has chosen to receive that. And, and when we understand this idea of being chosen, that has some, some ramifications for us that we need to understand. Uh, being chosen comes from the heart of God, not from the mind of people. Being chosen 
uh, and understanding that, that God has opened the door, that He has done the work, that He saved us, it should be an incentive for us to please God, not to ignore Him. See, see, sometimes people get this idea, well, I'm part of the elect, I'm chosen by God, so, you know, now I can just kind of relax, I can just re- ignore Him. You know, maybe you've, uh, and I hope I don't step on anybody's toes, but this is what I believe the truth is, and so if the truth steps on your toes, it's not really me. But, you know, some people will say, well, if somebody prayed a prayer when they were 12 years old, then no matter what they do the rest of their life, they could ignore God the rest of their life and they're still saved because once they're saved, they're always saved. Now, I don't believe, I don't believe that's true because, um, uh, you know, when, when we understand that we're, we've been chosen by God, that then that is an incentive to live my life to please Him. And, and when, when I'm chosen by Him, then I can't just simply ignore Him. And, and, and also, being chosen should give birth to gratitude, not complacency. Some people say, well, I'm part of the chosen. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And the, it's easy to get complacent with that attitude. But if I really understand that I've been chosen by, by God, then it gives birth to gratitude in my life. And I live my life differently. But what's the other side? The human responsibility. Human responsibility is it requires that we actively confess Christ as Lord. The Bible makes that clear multiple times that if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that we will be, we, we can be saved. Uh, human responsibility also focuses on living according to God's plan. So God has chosen me. It's my responsibility to confess Christ as Lord and put my faith in Him, and then in response to that salvation, then I must live according to God's plan as it's laid out in the Word. And then the third thing that's an important part of human responsibility that sometimes we forget, I think we know it in our head, but sometimes we forget, and that is that if all of this is true, then I have a, a responsibility as a human being who's been chosen by God to share the gospel with everybody. And that's a huge part of it. And then we're going to see all of this in this tonight. Having been chosen by God energizes a Christian's life of obedient service. Um, Responsibility challenges us to build a life worthy of of God's choice. And as you consider God's divine selection of of how, uh, excuse me, of you, then how do you respond? To that. That's, that's the thing we have to ask ourselves. Do I respond with pride or, or with, with apathy or do I respond with a worshipful heart and obedience? You see, we saw it in the Old Testament. Well, not just the Old Testament, even in New Testament times too. The, the, the people of Israel, we know we're God's chosen people, but God chose them to be a light among the nations. But instead, what, what happened by and large is they began to be proud and say, God has chosen us, therefore we must be special and all you other people, you're a bunch of dogs. And and they missed the point that being chosen by God is not supposed to make me apathetic or fill my heart with pride, but it's supposed to make my heart worship Him and walk in obedience to Him so that I can share the good news with everybody else that they're also chosen by God if they'll turn to Him. And and being chosen is a Christian's highest privilege. Let's look at verse 5. He said, 
because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Now, Paul and his companions, uh, we know Silas and Timothy here, and there are probably others even among their group, but Paul and his compa companions had, had brought the message of the gospel to Thessalonica. Before they arrived there, there was not a single believer in the, in the entire city. I mean, that's not shocking because this is in the early days of the church, and the church was just being established all over the place. And, uh, but, but there's not a single believer in this, in this really large city. But then when they left, a strong church had been planted. And that's really remarkable when we think back at some of the things we've talked about in the previous weeks, where we realize that Paul, his time with the Thessalonians was very, very short, much shorter than he wanted it to be. And so that's why he was afraid that they had, uh, that they were going to forsake their faith because he didn't have time to disciple them the way he thought he needed to. But it just goes to show that, that sometimes, you know, I, I can tell you this, sometimes as a preacher, you, or as a minister, you you get this thing in your heart and you have this calling of God and you're like, man, I've got to disciple this person. I got to really help them grow. But, but we forget that I can help give them tools, but it's the Holy Spirit that brings the growth. And see, that's what happened here. Paul couldn't stay. He couldn't do the things that he wanted to do. But the Holy Spirit was more than trustworthy to be able to teach them what he needed them to, to learn. And so he, he came with no believers. He leaves a short time later when there's a strong church there that, that had been planted. But when Paul came, he brought the gospel message to people. And, and this, is, this is not a shock to anybody. This is not rocket science. But guess what? When he brought the message, he, he spoke with words. Whoa, is that a shock or what? He actually used words. And God had, he said, our, the gospel came to you not simply with words, but he used those words. God had used Paul's words. How he had, how, how had he done that? He'd used his words by enveloping those words with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul understood this. Uh, and, and I think this is, I think this is significant because this is right on the heels. You remember after uh, Philippi, and then, and then he eventually he ends up in Athens. And you remember the story in Athens where he, he presents this very uh, sophisticated philosophical argument to the people there. And there were a few people who believed. And, uh, and it wasn't that Paul was wrong in doing that. But I think it's significant that he comes to, Th to Thessalonica right after that. And he's, and he's saying to them, or no, I'm sorry, I got it backwards. He was in Thessalonica first. Forgive me, I got it backwards. But, uh, uh, but, but he said he came. So just scratch everything I just said. Um, uh, I, I'm tired. It was a long weekend, and so I'm a little frazzled. But, uh, uh, but Paul knew that while he had the words to speak, that his words alone could not persuade anyone to believe. His words could not open a needy heart to hear the message of the gospel. He could be eloquent. And Paul was so well-educated. He was very forceful and powerful in his teaching. 
but there is nothing in his abilities and his innate uh, power to make anybody change. That's another thing that ministers have to remember, and that is that I can't change you. You know, that's honestly, that's one of the most frustrating things about ministry is that I can't make choices for you. Because there, there are times when, you know, I've known people and I'd talk with them, I'd pray with them, or maybe there'd be a message that I preach and, and I know that they need to respond. And there've been times I was like, man, if, if I could just make the choice for you right now, you'd be better off, you know, down the road. But, but I can't do that. And Paul couldn't do that. But, but here's the thing. His words combined with the power of the Holy Spirit to convict and to convince and to enlighten and to comfort while Paul's words couldn't do anything, but his words uh, it, it combined with the power of the Holy Spirit could bring many, many people to believe the gospel. Now, when he says that it came with power, uh, I will say this. It, we're not told specifically any miracles that took place in Thessalonica, but we, all, we also know that every other place Paul went and he preached there were the words were the word of God was confirmed with miraculous acts. And so when he says that, that it was with power, it's very likely uh, there's no reason to think that he's not referring to miracles. So there were probably these miraculous things that took place that they saw. Otherwise, how do you see the power of God? But so, so Paul presented the gospel with the Holy Spirit's power. And it's the Holy Spirit that changes people when they believe the gospel. When, when we tell other people about Jesus, this is so important for us to get this because we have to depend on the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and convince them that they need salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that we just, you know, go into conversations that we just never prepare ourselves. You know, we're in the middle of this series called uh, uh, Answering Our Culture, and it's about being prepared to give an answer and so it's not about saying, well, I'm just going to trust the Lord. He'll give me the words. No, he will bring back the words to you that you have learned. And, and at times he'll give you something that maybe you didn't learn. But, but it, it's more presumption than faith to say, I don't have to do anything to prepare myself. God will just do whatever at the right time. But, uh, but, but when we tell other people, we need to not fall into the trap of saying, I can convince them. If I can just get the perfect argument, if I can get the perfect answer, that'll do it. I have never in all my years of ministry, let's see, I'm, I can't do the math that fast, a uh, number of how many years I've been in ministry. Um, so uh, uh, coming up on, let's see, 85, so 25 would be what, 40 years? So almost 40 years of full-time ministry. I have never seen anyone even come close to being argued into, into a relationship with Jesus. All I've seen when that argument takes place is a hardening and a wall being built. And, and so we can't fall into the, into the trap of saying, well, I, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get all the answers that I can and I'll be ready. Now that's good to be ready. But you have to when you're ready. Because Paul knew the gospel. He knew the message he was proclaiming. He knew it very, very well. He knew it intimately. But he also knew, knew 
that just knowing the right answers wasn't enough, that he needed the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that where, where he somehow just infuses those words with power and it causes the, the hearts and the minds of people who are hearing to be able to understand and to see it. You know, we're told in Scripture that, that uh, the God of this world has blinded those that, that don't know Christ. And so there's a miracle that takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit when they hear the gospel where he opens their eyes and the, and, and the Holy Spirit then convinces them that they need salvation. That's so important because, listen, if there's somebody that's on your heart or somebody that you're talking to about Jesus, it's really great to get the answers and to try to find the answers that they uh, to questions that they may have. It's wonderful to be prepared. You should be prepared. But I'm, I'm, I, maybe here's a better way to say it. You cannot neglect the spiritual preparation. You can be prepared with what you learn, but you also must be prepared in prayer. You need to, to, to talk to God. You need to do battle for that person's soul. You need to pray and say, God, I know my words are just not enough. I can't ever convince them. But God, whatever I have, help me to say the right things and then infuse those words with your power so that their eyes will pop open and their understanding will come to life and they'll be able to catch what, you, what, what it is that you're trying to say to them. Because the reality is, God's power, not our cleverness, not our persuasion, but God's power changes people. The Holy Spirit not only convicts people of sin, but He also assures them of the truth of the gospel. And without the work of the Holy Spirit, listen to me, we, if we, we really got to believe this, without the work of the Holy Spirit, our words are meaningless. Now, on the flip side of the coin, there, there is no witness until we speak. So it's wonderful to, say, to realize, man, I've got to rely on the Holy Spirit to be able to share Christ, to share the gospel. But I also have to remember, I can't say, God, anoint me, and then give him nothing to anoint. That, that there is no witness until we speak. Trust the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of those with whom you share the good news. Um, he, he, he will work in His way and in His timing. By the way, I'll just tell you this. If there's somebody that's a, especially if they're kind of a hard case and their heart is hardened, when you begin to pray for them and you begin to share the gospel with them, do not be shocked when suddenly they get angrier and they get more abusive, and they get harder, or it seems that way. Very often that's an indicator that the Holy Spirit's working on them and they're pushing back. So um, just trust in Him. He will work in His way, in His timing. You know, if, if you're like me, I want to pray for somebody, and then tomorrow I want to see a change. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and uh, you know, Julie's stepdad was a man who was very, very hard, very far from God, tough, tough life. And we tried to witness with him and to him and pray for him for years and years and years and years and years. And uh, we, we, we never gave up praying for him, but I'll be honest with you, uh, toward the end of his life, it was like, well, I'm praying, but doesn't seem to be doing anything. 
But you know what? He ended up with a cancer, mouth and throat cancer, late in his life, and 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 he was he was up in a hospital in Kansas City, and the pastor of the church in Fredonia, Kansas, went up to visit him, and he asked him one more time, Steve, how about it? And he gave his life to Jesus. And and listen, honestly, it hit it took so long. That at times in the flesh, I was thinking, I don't see this happening. But, but I kept praying, which, by the way, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a, an indi- important reminder to us that faith is not just something, you know, it's just not believing. It's more than that. It's, it's taking action. You see, for me, praying and to continue to pray, even when it was hard to believe that it would ever happen, was an act of faith. And because I wasn't, it's perseverance is so related to, to faith. But, but we, we just, all we can do is just simply make ourselves a, a willing instrument in the Father's hand. I need to move on. He said, he had a really, really powerful statement at the end of that verse. He said, you know how we lived among you. What, what, a, what a powerful statement. Paul's life among the Thessalonians bore witness to the truth that he was preaching to the Thessalonians. He said, listen, you, all these things, because, you know, there were, always, there were people attacking Paul, people saying, oh, he's just a grifter. You know, he's just a false teacher. He's just out for money. Look at him. He took off in the middle of the night. Does that sound like a real, a real gospel preacher to you and all these things? But Paul was able to say to them, okay, Forget, I think, everything that everybody's saying. You saw how we lived. Paul's life itself bore witness to the truth that he was preaching. While we we said this earlier, words without the Holy Spirit's power are useless. But listen, words that are not lived out are stumbling blocks. Your, your witness is not your words alone. Your witness is not your actions alone. You know, a lot of people say, uh, they'll say, well, I just want to live the, the gospel out. And well, if you don't talk about why you're different, then nobody knows why you're different, right? So it can't be just your actions, but it can't just be your words either. And if you have words, but then the way you live doesn't match the gospel that you're talking about, then, then instead of actually helping people find Christ, then your life, your very life becomes a stumbling block that keeps people, it prevents people, it trips them up on their journey to Christ. And So an effective witness combines words under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and it, it, along with a life of faith lived out on a daily basis. And you have to have it all together. Now, does that mean you're going to be perfect and you're going to do it right every time? Of course not, because there's only one person that ever did it right all the time. And that was Jesus. Um, and there's only one person that will ever have done it right all the time, and that's Jesus. So there are going to be times when you fail. Uh, that, that's not the point of this. But the question, uh, and, and those are momentary things. This is what we're talking about here is a lifestyle. That's an ongoing thing in your life, the way you live your life. And I think understanding this, that I have to have words that are anointed by the Spirit, 
but I also have to make sure my life matches those words so that I don't become a stumbling block. What that means is I have to ask myself the question, what statement about Christ does my, is my lifestyle making? Because I may be saying the right things, but if I'm living a lot, if I'm filled with bitterness, if I'm filled with unforgiveness, if I'm mean to people around me, if, 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 you know, if I, all these things, if, if I'm just, you know, that, you know, the kind of person, you know, you're filled with all kinds of these different issues and horrible, sinful attitudes. I may be saying the right things, but I've got to make sure that my lifestyle is saying the same things. So ask yourself, do, do your actions block people from accepting your words? How many of you ever heard the saying, a, uh, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words? I heard something similar that one time. I can't remember. I, I didn't write this down. I'm trying to remember exactly what it said, but it's something that was along the lines of, uh, uh, well, I'll just have to say it. It's, this is not correct, but you'll get the gist of it. And, th- and it was a statement that said, I can't hear what you're saying because of what you're doing. Let's go on to verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Because of their excellent example, the Thessalonians became imitators of Paul and his companions and imitators of the Lord. And I want you to notice the, the order of imitation is striking. They imitated Paul first, then the Lord. And, and that's the way it always happens. People see your life and then they determine by your life whether or not there's any truth to your words. And, and, and so we, we sometimes say, oh, don't don't look at me. Don't look at me. You know, I'm just I'm failed. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not perfect. That's true. You're not perfect. Uh, neither was Paul. But what did he say? First Corinthians 11, 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Philippians 3.17, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Philippians 4.9, Whatever you have learned, oh, this is so powerful, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Boy, you know, that's a, that's a pretty broad statement. You better have lived, you better have lived a godly life if you're going to say anything that you've ever heard me say, any teaching you've ever received from me, what, anything that you've learned from me, anything you've seen me do, you do that. And if you do, then the peace of God's going to fill your heart. That's, that's pretty powerful. See, we have to understand if people are going to be drawn to Jesus, if they're going to see him, they've got to see him in us. And, and we say, well, don't look at me. I'm, I'm not perfect. But here's what we have to understand. People are not looking for perfection. In fact, when they see somebody who acts perfect, they automatically and rightfully so automatically mark them down as a fake. So if you try to present yourself as perfect, they're not going to believe you. 
Nobody believes you. You don't even believe yourself, <laughs> frankly. But they're not looking for perfection. What people are looking for is for honesty and sincerity. What does that mean? That means that when I do fail, if I honestly believe the gospel and I sincerely follow Christ, then I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make it right. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. If I sin against them, I'm going to ask them to for, for, for forgiveness. And I'm going to go to Christ. I'm going to confess my sin to Him. I'm going to make it right. Because you, you will fail at some time or another. You will sin at some point of your life. Some of us, before we even get home tonight, you know, it's just the way it's going to be. But, but when that happens, people need to see that you're willing to make things right and you're willing to get up and try again. You're not going to quit. That you sincerely believe this gospel and you're not going to give up on it. And, and, and Paul said that they became imitators in spite of severe suffering. The, the message of salvation, although welcomed with great joy, brought the Thessalonian believers severe suffering. Their belief in Christ led to persecution from both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, because they, you know, they were saying, no, you're, you're not even doing this right. There's only one God. That part's right, but this is, Jesus is not him. And the Gentiles, because we're going to see it in a moment, when they, converted to Christ and began to follow him, they, they forsook all of their false gods. So, so the, the, you know, when, when they began to follow him, they, they, they fell into severe suffering. There are many, many Christians. We're so blessed to live where we live because there's, there are many, many Christians all over this world that when they give their lives to Christ, they know it could very well be a death sentence. And they suffer severely. Why, why is it? How can they hang on during that? It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. What He does in their lives. Now, this, you know, the fact that they fell into this severe suffering and persecution, that was really, honestly, it was to be expected. Jesus had told His disciples that because He suffered, so would they. John 15, uh, 18 through 21 Jesus is speaking. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. He's saying, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be hated by the world, which, you know, there's, there's so many Christians and so many churches today that want to be loved by the world. It's impossible. There are people in the world that will love you. But the attitudes in the world are in direct opposition to what you believe. Uh, let me read another one. John 16, 33. Jesus again speaking. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So he's saying, yeah, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have persecution. But don't worry. You, you, have the, you can walk in peace because you know when it's all said and done, I have won. I'm the winner, and you're going to be with me. 
And the New Testament abounds with predictions concerning suffering and, and, and also has words of comfort for those who are suffering. And, and honestly, there are many, many Western Christians, especially in, in, uh, in uh, wealthy nations like the United States, that really struggle with this concept uh, because there are many Christians that believe that pain is the exception in the Christian life, that that's, that that's uh, you know, that, that that should be something rare that happens. And, and when suffering does occur, occur in their life, they often respond to, why me? Why me, God? Why does this happen to me? And they feel as if God deserted them, or perhaps they accuse him of not being as dependable as they thought he should be. I know of a guy, for example, that uh, in, in Idaho that, that uh, began, he saw this pickup truck, and he began claiming that pickup truck. And when some, somebody else bought it, he, he walked away from God. Because his eyes were on a pickup truck, not on Jesus. And, and, uh, you know, and they thought he, you know, it was like God had deserted him because, and, and that for him was the height of suffering. How pitiful is that? But in reality, this world is sinful. And because this world is sinful, there is suffering and even believers suffer because we live in a broken world. How many of you believe that the world as it is now is how God planned it to be. No, not even close. How did it get to be this way? We're going to talk a little bit about it Sunday. You know, uh, how did it get to be this way? Well, it wasn't because of anything God did. We broke it. We messed it up. We're the ones that brought suffering in. And, and so instead of asking why me, as a follower of Christ, maybe the real question we should be asking is, well, why not me? You know, why should I be the exception? Why shouldn't I suffer as other believers have suffered for their faith? Or even better yet, why shouldn't I suffer for my faith if Christ also suffered in this world? <coughs> Excuse me. But the truth is, our faith <clears throat> and the values of this world are always on a collision course. And it's, you know, we, we have lived for many, many years in the United States in a, in a <clears throat> very much Christianized society where for a long, long time, many of the values of our society sort of lined up with Christian values. But all you have to do is look around now and realize that is no longer true. And the, the clash between worldly values and, and, the, and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the holiness of God is becoming more and more stark every single day. But, when, and, and as a result, by the way, as a result, that leads to greater suffering. Uh, why is it that Christians in these nations that I mentioned earlier suffer? It's because they're in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a society that, that is in direct opposition to the gospel, so it creates even more suffering for them. But in the middle of that, we can take comfort, first of all, in knowing that Jesus also suffered. So that means He knows exactly what I'm going through in that moment. He understands my fears. He understands my weaknesses. He understands my disappointments. He understands my temptation to even give up in the face of suffering. And, but, but He promised to never leave us and, and He never forsake us. So as we walk through the suffering, He's right there. He's weeping with us. 
he he's he knows he understands but but you know there's another side of that that i i don't know about you but it's so precious to me and that is that we're taught that he intercedes on our behalf he the scripture says he is ever interceding he is right now interceding on your behalf in times of pain and persecution and suffering we can trust confidently in Christ. Let me read verses 7 through 10. And so you become a model to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So the Thessalonians had followed the example of the missionaries and, and of the Lord himself. And they had in turn become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, Macedonia and Achaia refer to the two provinces that make up, made up what it was as our modern day Greece. And this was the area along with, uh, Asia, places around Turkey. This is where most of the new churches were concentrated. So they would hear words. You know, it's, it's amazing that even before modern com conveniences and cell phones and all these things, that word still got out. And, and so they would hear about them. And Paul, praised this church in Thessalonica because not only were they model believers to an unbelieving world, but they were also examples to other believers. And in these words, that this, these words of praise that Paul gives to them, uh, he praised this church uh, uh, and, and, and no other church received this particular type of praise. Yet Paul even goes further than that, writing, he said that the, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So these, these Thessalonian believers had a, had a worldwide reputation as far as the known world. And they were ex an example to all the other churches. The, 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 the Thessalonians believed the gospel, they lived the gospel, and they shared the gospel. It was, it was what it was all about. And Paul pictured it as, as, as ringing out like a bell across the continent. And the message of these believers' lives, lives had an effect that reached even further than the, than the boundaries of Macedonia and Achaia. He said that their faith was known everywhere. I mean, wouldn't that be something if, if all over the world people talked about Restoration Life Church because of the, the, the work that God was doing in our lives? That's, that's really the kind of idea that's here. Their, their faith was so well known that Paul said he didn't need to say anything about the work that God was doing there. He didn't have to bring it up because he'd go to a church somewhere and he'd be talking to the believers and, and they're already talking about the church in, in Thessalonica. There, a, a believer from another church might be found just saying, hey, have you heard what God's done in Thessalonica? I mean, Paul didn't even get to stay there and they were facing persecution and man, they're growing like crazy. And, and their faith was universally known. That is so powerful. It's so encouraging for us to realize that 
that this is, this is not a mega church, but this is a church that had such faith in God, they just trusted Him and they walked through persecution and suffering in such a way that the whole world took notice. He said that they had, one of the things they talked about was that they had turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. In fact, the truth is, that's one of the reasons why they were suffering severely because of this change of faith and life. They had turned from dead, worthless idols to serve the one living and true God. Now, the impact of that in, in modern America may slip past our, our modern ears because the, the idols, you, you know, to us, we know they're nothing. But in their culture, the idols, the, the Greek and the Roman gods that they, that re, they represented, they, they were considered to be extremely powerful. In their mind, all power and, and all kind of, of, of all kinds rested in this large number of gods that they had. Now, what, that's what's so amazing about the, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, because he says, yeah, there, there's all power, but it's not spread out among all these. It's all right here. I got it. But you add to the fact that they believed that these gods, these idols represented these powerful beings. But also, you may not know this because of most of us don't know geography, but these Thessalonian believers lived barely 50 miles away from Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods were said to live. So it's very, very close to the source of all of this. And, and to turn from their many false idols to the one true God had caused upheaval in all areas of their life. It wasn't just, well, I think I'll live for Jesus now. It was a total abandonment of their former way of life and the former things that they believed. All the things that they had been taught growing up, they rejected and abandoned it. That's a big deal. And when they do that, all those people that are still worshiping the idols take that very personally. Who do you think you are? And, uh, and not to mention the fact that it also uh, began to hurt the pockets of the people who made the idols because <laughs> they're selling these idols and all of a sudden fewer people are buying them. But, uh, but these people, the Thessalonians, had allowed the message of the gospel to so impact their lives that they were willing to serve the one and true God no matter what the sacrifice, no matter what it cost them, no matter what, how it hurt, they were going to serve Him. So in, in it, it, it goes on in that same verse that we just read. In addition to turning and serving, so they turned to God, they served the, the, turn, uh, turned away from their idols, turned to God and served the one true God, but we're also told that they were waiting now, all believers await God's Son from heaven, as Paul said it there in the passage, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. All believers look forward to the return of Christ to rescue them from the coming wrath. I want to talk about that for a minute, because the coming wrath is uh, very difficult for some people to believe. They really have a hard time accepting that. Uh, you know, maybe you've heard somebody say something uh, 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 and even people who claim to be Christian have, have gone so far to say these things, but they say something along the lines of, if God is a loving God, 
He's not going to send anybody to hell. They have a hard time picturing a wrathful God. Because, because they, I mean, it's true that God is love, but they're neglecting all the other parts of who God is. His holiness, for example. Um, and, and so, for many people, it's difficult to accept that, that there is a wrath from God that is coming for this world. And, and it is a reality that God will indeed bring wrath upon a sinful world. Just as in the Old Testament, the people understood God's hand in all matters, both blessings and curses. You know, if things were going good, they saw God's hand in that. When things are going bad, they saw God's hand in that. It's the same way in the New Testament where you see God working and you see not only His blessings, but you see the wrath of God. And, and even though it's being withheld to a certain degree at this point in time, it's there. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Romans 1.18, which the whole first chapter of Romans is really all about the wrath of God and how it's poured out. That's a whole different study. But it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 9.22, what if God, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? Ephesians 5.6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Colossians 3.5 and 6, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 18. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Revelations 14, 19. The angel swung his sickle on the earth gathered his grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. What a powerful word picture there. Revelation 19. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen. God's wrath is a certainty. We know that. He will not let sin continue unabated forever. His grace is holding back His wrath at this point in time. His mercy is keeping uh, His wrath back. But there will come a day, individually and, and corporately as well, but there will come a day when the wrath of God will be poured out as a result of sin. Um, you, can, you can even see it, a picture, you know, with, uh, with the Israelites when they were being set free from Egypt on the, the final plague. And, and they had to put the, the blood of, of, the, of the lamb that was sacrificed on the doorpost. And, and if they had the blood over the, over the, 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 the door of their home, then the death angel passed over, but where they didn't, what happened? That death came 
the wrath of God was poured out where the blood was not covering. This, this is why for us, we're not afraid of the wrath of God because our doorframe is covered with the blood of the Lamb. But because we know it's real, because we know it's coming, it's another reminder to us that, that if we truly believe this, we have got to let people know. We have to. All of us should respond to the good news as the Thessalonians did. To turn, to serve, and to wait. We should turn from sin to God because Christ is coming to judge the earth. So I need to turn from sin so that I don't, I'm not a partaker in the wrath. So we have to ask ourselves, have I turned to God? And not only that, also, if I turn to God, from what have I turned? Because I'm not just turning to God and keeping everything else, but I'm turning away from something. I'm forsaking what was there before and embracing Him. So what difference has it made in your life? Number two, we should be fervent in our service because we have very little time before Christ returns. I believe that. I mean, listen, the world is just falling apart. It cannot go on much longer. I believe that at any moment Christ could, Christ could come. And if we believe that, then we will work that much more fervently. Um, so are you serving God? If so, how? Is He pleased with your work for Him? Are you taking seriously? Do you really believe Jesus is coming back? Because if you really believe it, You'll do something in these last days to gather in as many as possible. And third, we should be waiting for Christ to return. And we should always be ready because we don't know when He'll come. Now, I, I don't want to, when I say that, I don't want to say that to, in, to, to infer because, you know, growing up, there, there was this sense in the church, you know, that, uh, if I, if, if, you know, if like, maybe some of you remember some of these things, like if you were in a movie theater and Jesus came back, you were not going to go to heaven. Anybody remember those days? So I, I don't want to get, I don't want to talk about that, you know, where you're saying, oh, am I really saved or not? You know, what, but what I'm talking about is an, is an attitude of constantly seeking the Lord and constantly being ready for him, uh, for his return, you know, not walking in fear saying, Oh, did, did I sin yesterday? And if I did, am I, am I going to miss out? You know, that's not what I'm talking about because God's grace is a lot bigger and stronger than a lot of us think it is. But in the middle of this, do you eagerly await the coming of Christ from heaven? And, and, and if, if, if you do, why? And if you don't, why not? Is, is, there, is there a sense of dread when you think about Jesus' return or... Is there a lack of longing for the return of Christ? Because if so, that, that may be, I'm not saying it is, but it may be an indicator that your heart really isn't in the right place with Jesus. I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe you love this world more than you love Him. Maybe your heart is attached to this temporal world 
instead of longing for an eternity with Christ. Whatever the reason, it's important for us to continually examine our lives, examine our hearts, to make sure we're living lives worthy of the calling He has placed upon us. And, and He has called all of us. We're all chosen. We've been called out of sin. We've been called in, out of darkness and into His glorious light. We have been called. And so as Paul said in other places, live lives worthy of your calling. That's how you're ready. Be telling people, everybody you can, every chance you have, Look for ways to turn the conversation to Christ. And I know, I'll tell you this, at first it will feel awkward, but you'll get more and more used to it and it'll become second nature and you're going to talk about it more and more and more. Because here's the thing, here's the thing I learned a long time ago. People always talk about those things or those people they love. You always talk about what you love. You know, let, let me give a simple illustration and then we're going to close. Uh, has anybody here ever hung around a first-time grandparent? Anybody ever been around somebody like that? What is it that they always want to talk about? Everything that's said and everything that happens reminds them about their grandchild. Oh, you know, my baby did this, my grandchild did this, and... And that's, and I don't, I don't, I'm not decrying that. I think that's wonderful because it just shows how much you love that grandchild. Listen, everything in life ought to remind us of Jesus. We should, we should be so in love with him to where it's not that we're just trying to figure out a way to, you know, I've got to remember to keep Jesus in my conversation, but that we love him so much that somebody says something, you say, oh man, that reminds me so, of something I read in the word the other day or, Oh man, this, this reminds me of, of this story in the Bible, or this, that just makes me think of Jesus, you know. I can I, did I tell you what the Lord did for me last week? And, you know, oh, you're sick? Man, you know what? Two weeks ago I was sick and I prayed and the Lord healed me. Everything, everything reminds us of Him. You see a beautiful sunset, and, you, and instead of just saying, oh, that is so gorgeous, you say, Lord, Thank you for painting that. It's just a reminder of your beauty. That's who I want to be. That's who I want us to be. Because when we love Him that much, we're going to tell people about Him. And, and, and our love for Him will be, be contagious. Because people will have questions. They'll want to know about this one you love so dearly. Because they're not going to listen to your arguments. Be prepared, but they're not going to listen to arguments. But they will long for the peace that you have. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, I just thank you, Lord, that uh, you, you can just do such great and powerful things in us and through us. And Lord, I pray that as we have heard from your word, just help us, God, to make sure that our words and our actions line up and that we're walking under the anointing of your spirit and that we're keeping our hearts in the right place and that we're that we turn from the world and turn to you that we serve you with our whole heart and god that we are waiting anxiously for your return and in doing that god i pray that you would you would let your light shine through us in a in a way lord god that everybody sees you 
And, and Lord, that you would draw people to Jesus. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.